And as you are seated and uh, settling back into your seats, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. As we go through the communion seasons in this church, we like to take a break from our normal sermon series and preach a little bit of practical piety to help us understand the Lord's ways and how to glorify and enjoy Him. And we're now moving through the Ten Commandments, which are the most practical guide for the Christian life that we have. This morning, we'll be considering the first commandment as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Give attention to God's holy word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we give you thanks for the ordinance of preaching, that it is your means by which you manifest eternal life to your people. But we also acknowledge, O Lord, that it is not by strength nor by might, but by your spirit that your purposes are accomplished. And so we pray now that during this time of preaching, it would not be by might nor by strength, but by the manifestation of your spirit in our midst. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the areas of study that I I enjoy is military history. Perhaps some of you also like to read military history. As you read through some of these uh, great campaigns and you learn about some of the great commanders who have led armies throughout the history of mankind, you find that there is a common feature with the great commanders. Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Robert E. Lee, all of these great commanders had one thing in common. They had incredible loyalty from their troops. In all of these cases, actually, the troops loved their commanders. These men were such leaders of men that they were able to gain the love and the devotion of their followers because in every one of these cases, the commanders cared about their followers. And that was displayed in the way that they led these men. Caesar famously was on the front lines with his legionaries. When they were outnumbered four to one by the Gauls, Caesar would run right up to the line. He wore a bright red cloak, the commander's cloak, and so all the men saw, Caesar is with us. Napoleon as well went on campaign with his troops. Robert E. Lee famously cared for his troops. And there was great loyalty that they had for their commanders. But you see this this dynamic played out not only in military history, you also see it in the history of the church. Have you ever asked yourself, could I be a martyr for Christ? Am I devoted enough to the Lord Jesus 
That if push came to shove, if recanting my faith or facing the lions was put before me, could I be a martyr for Christ? The history of the church is filled with the stories of the martyrs. One of my favorites and probably one of the most famous ones is the story of, I believe it was Polycarp. When he was an old man in his 80s, he was dragged before the Roman, uh, before the Roman authorities and he was threatened with death and they said, renounce Christ and give an offering to the emperor. And Polycarp, this old man, said to them, Christ has been good to me all the years of my life. What kind of a man would I be were I to deny him now? He has never denied me all of my years. And so he gave his life because of his loyalty to Christ. But what I want you to see and what we're going to see in this passage and and really the, the heart of the first commandment, which is thou shalt have no other gods before me, the, the heart of how Polycarp was able to die for Christ, the reason the soldiers were the loved their commanders and were loyal to their commanders is because they knew their commanders. In the case of Polycarp, and in our case as well, it is the knowledge of God that produces our devotion to God. It is the more that we know of Him and of His glorious saving work and of His infinite and eternal person that our devotion grows towards Him. In particular, what we're going to see in this passage is that the fullness of our knowledge of God requires a fullness of devotion to Him. The fullness of our knowledge of God requires of us a fullness of devotion to Him. Now remember that we are examining the first commandment. This is not the traditional place that you would find the first commandment, but it is a recasting of that commandment. It's a restatement of what the first commandment means and how we are to live it out. In this passage, we're going to see two things, our knowledge of God and our devotion to God. Verse 4 is our knowledge of God. Verses 5 through 9 is our devotion to God. Verse 4, our knowledge of God. Verses 5 through 9, our devotion to God. And so we begin by looking at verse 4. Now, this is a very famous verse in the Old Testament, perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. This verse is known as the Shema. The Shema was something that would be uh, broadcast from the temple, and it was something that was given to the nation of Israel. The reason this is called the Shema is because the first word in Hebrew is the Hebrew word Shema, and that word simply means to hear. And so as our verse opens up, Moses is preaching to the people, and he says, Shema, O Israel, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Another way to understand this verse, because it occupies such an important place in the Old Testament, you can understand this verse as a confession of faith. This is, as it were, a creed of the Old Testament church. Now, it's a very short creed. It's very compacted. 
but it says everything that we need to know about the Lord our God. And he begins with uh, that name, the name of the Lord. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. In your Bibles, hopefully the word Lord is printed with all caps. This is the covenant name of Jehovah. This is God's unique name, the name that he gave to Moses in, uh, on Mount Sinai when he delivered the people from Egypt. The name Jehovah, it, the, the, the main meaning of this name is that God is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God who keeps his promises. Jehovah is the one, as you look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, turn there with me. Exodus 3, verses 14 through 17. This is where the Lord reveals this name to Moses. Moses is asking the Lord, you're going to send me to the people of Israel. They're going to ask me, what is his name? What's the name of this God that you sent to us? The Lord answers him this way. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now before we get to the rest of this parallel passage, we need to understand what that name actually means. When the Lord says, I am what I am, the Lord is telling Moses, I am the one who exists. I am the one who is dependent on nobody. I am the one who is the absolute ground and source of everything else that exists. I exist of myself. Everything else is dependent upon me. He is the supreme being. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But God is not simply the independent supreme being. He is not simply the God who exists and everything else exists because of him. Because he is the unchangeable God, I am what I am, and what's implied is I never change. Because of his divine nature of unchangeableness, theologically you've probably heard the term immutable. Because of God's immutability, he is therefore the covenant-keeping God. And that's where he goes next with Moses. Look at what he does in verses 15 through 17. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice what the Lord tells Moses about his name. I am the self-existent, independent, unchanging, absolute being of all existence, and I am coming to save you 
in fulfillment of the promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made promises to your fathers. Now I'm coming to fulfill those promises. Interesting to note out that in verse 17, this is a repetition of the exact promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God promised to Abraham, I will bring you into the land of all these nations. And he lists all of these nations. God now repeats this promise to Moses and says, now I have come to fulfill it. So the name Jehovah means that he is our covenant-keeping God. He is the unchangeable one. He is the one who never fails to fulfill what he promises. But there's more in this uh, statement about the Lord's name. Notice that Moses reminds the people he is the Lord, our God. He is the Lord who belongs to us. He is not some God out there in existence that's far beyond us. He is the Lord, our God. He has made a covenant with us. He has established a relationship with us. The living and true God, the one upon whom all existence depends, is your God. This is a repetition, again, as I said, of the first commandments, a recasting of the first commandment. But if you turn to Exodus chapter 20, you'll see the preface of the Ten Commandments contains the same idea. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. You can begin in verse 1 just to get a little bit of context. And God spoke all these words to Moses, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so in Deuteronomy 6, Moses just rephrases this idea and says he's the Lord our God. Well, what's implied here? What's implied here in, in Deuter- uh, Exodus 20, verse 2, and in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, what's implied in the creed of Israel, the, the confession of their faith, is that our relationship with Jehovah, the covenant that he has established with us, was initiated, it is the product of his saving grace. You see, God is our God because of what He has done. God has established a covenant with His people by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Through His saving work, He has made His people His own. This means it's not dependent on your work. It means it's not dependent on what you do. It's not dependent on how you keep the law that Moses is about to give to Israel. You can claim that Jehovah is your God because of Jehovah's saving grace. That is the foundation, not only of the first commandment, but of all the commandments that we're going to look at. Now, we need to unpack this just a little bit more because many errors in Christianity, many errors of religion, Many errors of our own consciences arise 
from putting the cart before the horse in this connection. How often has it been, brothers and sisters, when God convicts you of a sin and your flesh and the world and the devil come to you and say, you must not be one of Jehovah's. Look at how you failed. Look at how you did not keep God's laws. You have sinned. You might as well lose hope and keep on sinning. Has anybody ever experienced that? I have. But the gospel message, even in the Old Testament garb that we look at it in, even in Jehovah's covenant with Israel, the fact that they had sinned doesn't destroy the covenant. Because the covenant is based on the grace of the unchangeable God. The relationship is based upon his work and not our own. Finally, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we see that Jehovah is the unchanging God. We see that through his gracious work of salvation, he establishes the covenant with us. We also need to recognize that through his saving work, he makes himself known to us. Through the act of salvation, God is communicating with us not only life, but he's also communicating truth. He's displaying to us who he is and what he is like. Again, in the book of Exodus, this, the, the Exodus from Egypt is the, is the foundation of really the entire Old Testament. But in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord tells Israel this. Exodus 6, verse 7. A little bit of context here to understand exactly what the Lord tells Israel. This is uh, after the first encounter with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has rejected Moses' plea. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And now the Lord responds to this with Moses. Starting in verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I am the unchangeable one. I will fulfill my word. No matter what Pharaoh says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and you, I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Notice what the Lord is saying here. I am the Lord. I will accomplish my purposes. No matter the barriers and the roadblocks and all of the obstacles that Pharaoh puts in my path, because of those obstacles and the mighty outstretched arm that I will display, you, my people, will know that I am indeed the God who keeps my promises. 
you will see, no matter what lies in my path, I will overcome all of it for the sake of my promises. And so when Moses tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he's preaching the gospel to us. He's recounting everything God did in the exodus of Egypt, and he is pointing forward to the accomplishment in Christ. You know that Jesus' name means Jehovah saves. The very name Jesus, Yeshua, is a name that means Jehovah is the one who accomplishes. Jehovah is the one who will save. You know also that the other character in the Bible who bore this name was Joshua, the son of Nun. In Hebrew, Joshua and Jesus are the same name, Yeshua. It's just a matter of pronunciation. And Joshua was the appointed successor of Moses. Joshua was the one who was chosen to fulfill what Moses began. Likewise, Christ comes as the salvation of Jehovah to fulfill all of the promises that Jehovah made in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 49, verses 7 through 9. The Lord is speaking about the servant, which is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice how this mission of Christ, the sending of this servant, is in fulfillment explicitly of God's promises in the Old Testament. Starting in verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. I will give you the Lord Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of covenant promises. I will give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth and cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Well, in Isaiah 49, 7 through 9, we see that the predictions of Christ are that Jehovah is going to send him in fulfillment of his promises. And then, of course, we have the realization in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just two more verses here to look at. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 First uh, John chapter four verse nine. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Also, in the same chapter, verse nineteen, we love Him because He first loved us. This is just a New Testament phrase expressing the same thing Moses expressed in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord, our God. And so, in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord reminds us through the hands of Moses of what he has done for us. 
he, he declares to us that we are his people by his saving work, and it's through that saving work that we know him as the unchanging, uh, uh, undefeated God. But there's more in verse 4 that we need to pay attention to. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so Moses has reminded us of his saving work, but now he reminds us of Jehovah's exclusive claim upon us. You see, brothers and sisters, when the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, he said, I'm redeeming you. I am paying a great price to claim ownership over you exclusively. Likewise, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as all the apostles will write, Peter, Paul, and all the rest, you have been redeemed, you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Jehovah has paid the ultimate price for your redemption, the blood of his only begotten son. And because of that uh, ransom price, he now has exclusive claim over us. That's why Moses says this here. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other. There is no other God that you give devotion to. There is no other God that you can pray to. There is no other God that can save you. Jehovah is one. But this also implies not only God's exclusive claim over us, but this says something about the divine nature. We're going to go up the ladder a little bit into a rather deep and sometimes difficult topic. But what I want you to grasp from this is that God is not like us. Traditionally, in the Confession of Faith of Westminster and in uh, all of the Reformed theologians up to the modern period, they confessed that God is simple. This is known as the doctrine of divine simplicity. What divine simplicity means is that God is not composed of multiple things. You and I are composed. We have two parts, body and soul. The, the animals in the field, the trees, the sun, the stars, even the angels are composite beings, meaning that they are made pardon me, not the angels, but all physical creation, so us and all of this created order, are composed of different substances, and that's how we exist, as composite beings. God, however, is not. He is perfectly simple and uncomposed. Now, as I said, this is a very difficult doctrine, but it's a very important and profound doctrine. There are many errors in the church today that arise from a denial of divine simplicity. If God is not simple, if he's not uh, uncomposed, if, if something has to be added to the divine essence, then he is no longer perfect because addition implies imperfection. If God is unchangeable, then that means that there's nothing that can be added to or taken away from him. He is unchangeable. And if God is not unchangeable, if God is not absolutely simple, you have no hope. Because our only hope is in the promises of Jehovah. 
And if Jehovah can change, if he can be added to or subtracted from, then his promises can be added to. His promises can be subtracted from. If Jehovah is not absolute, his word is not absolute, and we have no anchor for our souls. And so the, Moses reminds the people, he's the Lord your God, he exists of himself, he has exclusive claim on you, and he is absolutely trustworthy because he never changes. He is the only God, and he is the simple God. If you'd like to talk more about divine simplicity, please reach out. I'd be happy to talk at a different setting. There's much more that could be said about it, but for us here, this is what Moses is giving us for now. The other thing that we need to keep in mind, though, is that the divine essence, knowing God as he is, can only happen through his works of salvation, of which the scriptures are a part of that. I'm not saying God's saving works are something different from Scripture. I'm saying that God's works in saving his people as recorded in the Scriptures, even the existence of the Scriptures themselves are one of these saving works. So it's only through God's saving work that we can know him, that we can know anything of what God is like. Just as salvation was fulfilled in Christ, so also the knowledge of God is fulfilled in Christ. Look at a couple of scriptures in the New Testament. First in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Understand what Christ is saying here. God the Father is Jehovah Almighty. The only way that you can know Jehovah Almighty in exhaustive and absolute accuracy is if you also are Jehovah Almighty. And so the Son says, nobody knows the Son except the Father. And nobody knows the Father except the Son. Why? Because they are both Jehovah Almighty. Let me illustrate it this way. God is infinite. And in order to know infinity, you also have to be infinite. That's what Christ is saying here. I am God Almighty because I know the Father exhaustively and exclusively. But then, notice what he says. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so if you would know God the Father Almighty, you must receive the revelation that comes to us through the Son. That is the only way to know who God is. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he alone has exhaustive knowledge of God. He alone took on human flesh. And he alone accurately communicates to us what the Father is like. Paul says essentially the same thing in, in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the invisible God. Again, in verse 19, it says, It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of deity, the fullness of the knowledge of God dwells in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Paul prays for the, for the Colossian church and he admonishes them. Do not depart from the knowledge of God that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to the riches of the full assurance of understanding, notice, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Brothers and sisters, there are many persuasive words out there. There are many false doctrines, many false philosophies about who this God is and who this God is that we claim to know. There are many deceivers. And so Paul says that though I am absent in the flesh, let I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men and according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now pay attention. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the glory of Jehovah dwells in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Never depart from him. Because this is how Jehovah makes himself known. And you, through his fullness, are already complete in him. The covenant relationship with Jehovah has already been established with him. In the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, you are complete. And so because of the fullness because of the magnitude of our knowledge of God, because of the sheer weight of glory God has given to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first commandment requires a fullness of devotion to Him. And that's what we turn to now in our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. One application before we get to this next part of our passage. Understand, brothers and sisters, you need some theology in your life. Growth in Christianity means growth in the knowledge of who God is. Christianity is not exclusively a practical religion. What do I mean by that? 
I mean that Christianity is not exclusively a religion of do this, don't do that. Christianity is also a religion of knowing who God is and glorying in His majesty and worshiping Him alone. So if you would grow in your Christian faith, you must grow in the knowledge of who God is. This is what David prayed in several of the Psalms. He said, one thing I've desired and that will I seek of the Lord, to dwell in his tabernacle and to behold his glory and to inquire of him. Let that be our hearts as we serve the Lord. And the way we serve the Lord, as I've said, is through a fullness of devotion to Jehovah. We won't spend as much time on this, but I do want you to notice that this fullness of devotion is inwardly full and outwardly exhaustive. The devotion we owe to Jehovah and on the inner part of our persons should inwardly be full, and outwardly, the devotion we give to Jehovah encompasses our whole life. Our whole heart and our whole life is to be given to Jehovah in fulfillment of the first commandment. Look at what he says first. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is a description of the spiritual part of who you are, the inner part. The heart in the scriptures refers to the uh, seat of who you are, the centerpiece of what defines you. And so with the heart... uh, Moses is telling us that we have to love the Lord with all of our thinking, with all of our choosing, with all of our feeling. Our entire person should be devoted to Jehovah. He says also your soul, this word in Hebrew has several shades of meaning, but what it essentially means is your life. When God made man from the dust of the ground, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Same word here. And so soul refers to your life, meaning the strength and vigor of your existence. That is all to be given to Jehovah's service. And then he says, finally, with all of your strength. Strength would be uh, a reference to uh, all of your striving and all of your efforts, all the things that you strive after and seeking to grab, that you exert your strength in obtaining, should be given to Jehovah. And so inwardly, we are to love him with our entire soul, with our entire person, with our entire being. But not only do we devote our entire souls to him, we have to do it in the right way. As I've mentioned in previous sermons, doctrine without devotion is cold and dead. But devotion without doctrine is blind zeal. That's why Moses now comes to the next part in verse 6. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. There are many who are zealous for God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, the Jews were very zealous for God, but they were ignorant of God's ways. Likewise here, we can be zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be moved with all of the holy emotions that the Holy Spirit might stir up in our hearts. But if we do not have the Word to guide us, our devotions are vain. Our zeal 
is blind. And unlike a fire put in the fireplace, it becomes a fire lit in the forest, burning everything down. And so Moses tells us that we need the Word to guide us in our devotion to Jehovah. He says, if you love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, these words should be written on your heart. Now, here's a way to test ourselves. What do you read and think about the most? What do you meditate on? When your mind is idle, where does it go? Do you have the scriptures stored up in your thinking, or is it something else? The music of the day, something you saw in a movie, maybe a, a, a history book that you read, maybe it's military history that fills your head. These things are not necessarily wrong. But notice what Moses is telling us and what the first commandment requires of us. If we are devoted to Jehovah, that means we are devoted to His Word. We are devoted to His Scriptures. And His Scriptures are to be in our hearts. And so the Word is the external means of our devotion to Him. I encourage you, as I've encouraged you many times before from this pulpit, study the Scriptures. Learn the Bible. Memorize the Scriptures. For the young men in the church right now, a good challenge to set yourselves is to memorize Psalm 119. You can do it. It may seem daunting, but I guarantee you, if you set yourself to memorizing Psalm 119, your knowledge of the Scriptures will increase tenfold just by memorizing it. Learn the Scriptures. Know what the Word of God says. Psalm 1 promises a blessing upon this. Blessed is the man who meditates in God's law day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters, whose leaf shall not wither, and he will bear his fruit in his season. Learn the Scriptures. So inwardly, we are to give our whole selves to Jehovah, but also outwardly. And notice the way Moses describes this. As I said, I'll be succinct here. But notice that the fullness that he's describing is that we are to devote ourselves to Jehovah in all of our relationships, at all times, in everything we do, in all places. Look at what he says. This word you shall teach them diligently to your children. Our children, our blood family is the, the, the beginning of all of our human relationships. And so Moses cites this as a seed, so to speak, of where we should talk about the word. What's implied is it should be talked about in all of our relationships. So in every relationship that you have, in, uh, at every time, the service of Jehovah should be at the front of your mind. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That covers the entire day. You rise up in the morning, you sit in your house, you walk about doing whatever you do, and then you lie down. That's an entire day right there. So at every time, we are, we are to serve Jehovah and give ourselves to Him. Not only in every relationship and in every time, but also in everything that we do. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. To do work, you need two things, eyes and hands. 
Now, we know that there's handicapped folk that maybe have been afflicted in God's providence with blindness or paralysis. There are ways to overcome those things, but what Moses is describing and what I'm describing is ordinarily, if you're going to build, labor, farm, read, if you're going to do anything in this life, you have to have eyes and you have to have hands to do whatever work you're engaged in. And so Moses says that in everything that you do, the scriptures should be a part of it. The, the, the devotion to Jehovah should come out in your eyes and in your hands and in all of your works. Interestingly, this is an aside, you may know from the book of Revelation that the mark of the beast is a mark that is placed on the forehead and on the hands in the book of Revelation. That's a direct reflection of what Moses is saying here. The mark of the beast is not a physical mark that appears on your physical hands. The mark of the beast are works and deeds that identify you with Satan. Just as having the scriptures on your forehead and the scriptures written on your hands are works and deeds that identify you with Jehovah. And so Moses tells us in everything that you do, it is to be devoted to Jehovah. And then finally, in all places, wherever you find yourself, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, when you have to get somewhere, you have to go through your door. And when you return from going somewhere, you have to go through your door. And so the effect of this would be that wherever you go, the word's right there to remind you. If it's on your doorpost, you see it as you leave. If it's on your gates, you see it when you come back. And so Moses is telling us in every place, serve Jehovah. Give yourself in total devotion to him. Jehovah has made himself known to you through his saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fullness that God has displayed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is beyond our comprehension. It's so far above and beyond what we can hold in our hearts that there is an abundant, overflowing fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. David said in Psalm 23, My cup runs over with the abundance of the grace and the glory Jehovah has given to me. And if you are hoping in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, if your hope is placed on his finished work, the first commandment requires of you a correspondingly full devotion to him. It is not enough, brothers and sisters, to avoid worshiping the gods of the pagans. It is not enough to have no shrines to pagan deities in your house. It is not enough that you are not a Muslim. The first commandment requires a positive sacrifice and devotion of your entire being to God through the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Remember, your relationship with Jehovah is not based on how you keep the first commandment. Your relationship with Jehovah is based on how he fulfilled his promises. It's based on his saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now having brought you into relationship with him, he shows you the way that you should walk through the first commandment and through all of the commandments. The only way that you can keep the commandments is, as Paul said, by remaining in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper represents. The Lord's Supper is God reminding us that he is Jehovah, our God. He is Jehovah who has saved us. He is Jehovah who has fulfilled all of his promises in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. But in partaking of the Lord's Supper, and this is why those who are mature and able to discern are allowed to the supper, but those who are immature are not. In partaking of the supper, we are also recommitting ourselves. We're also renewing our vows to walk in the ways of Jehovah. We're repenting of our sins, we're confessing to God, and relying on his promises of grace and mercy to repent and to be cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper represents for us. It represents the Shema of Israel. And as we partake, we partake committing to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ that you have displayed to us a fullness of glory. We ask that you would expand our hearts to receive more of that glory. Even as Moses prayed on Mount Sinai that you would show us your glory and repeat to us ever and again the glory of your name. And we pray also, O Lord, that you would forgive us for the ways that we have not been fully devoted to you that we have kept back part of our hearts, that we've kept back part of our time, part of our relationships, part of our our works, and not given them all to you. Please forgive us and cleanse us through the Lord Jesus Christ and in being cleansed. May we endure to behold your glory finally in heaven. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.